All right, well, we're getting, we're getting uh, farther along in our long story short sermon series, and today we get to talk about comebacks. I get the opportunity to deliver this message about comebacks, which is very exciting, exciting for me. Um, I, love, I love comebacks, and hopefully you guys love some comeback stories as well. Um, I, I doubt anybody uh, recognizes this person. This is Lasse Vidin. Uh, he's a runner. Um, Runners don't have a lot of, you know, global recognition, but he was, a, he was an athlete, an Olympic athlete, and running is what he did, and he was good at it. He was from Finland. He was a Finnish runner. Not that he finished the race, you know, but he finished. He was a Finnish runner, and he was a distance runner who trained very hard. He trained very hard and had some success prior to the Munich Olympics of 1972. But he entered those games as a sort of a dark horse. You know, there was some buzz around um, Varin, but there was also some great uh, competitors that he was competing against that already had this global recognition that kind of were the stars of those sports whenever going into those games. Varin, he ran the 5,000 meter and the 10,000 meter races. Well, I had to do some quick, tricky math. 5,000 meters is 5K, and 10,000 meters is 10K, but they're not the same thing. We talk about 5Ks, 10Ks, those are in the Olympics too, and they run those on the road um, outside of the stadium, but the 5,000 meter and the 10,000 meter, they run around that track inside the Olympic stadium, um, around, that, around the track that goes around the field, and that's the, that's the track race for that, that distance of running. So the 10K race that Viren ran, is uh, it's the 10,000 meter, sorry, not the 10K, the 10,000 meter, and it's 6.213 miles. I did the conversion in Google, which is 25 laps around that Olympic track running, running, right? Like, like um, yeah, these guys are awesome. Anyway, old last say here, um, he experiences an event that is stitched into the fabric of our human existence, our human experience. It happens to everyone. It can happen. It can happen physically, mentally, emotionally, morally, careerally, lifefully, metaphorically, proverbially in the 12th lap of the 10,000 meter lap race. Last Savior and wipes out. He experiences a fall. There he is. His fall. He tripped up his feet got tangled. We've all experienced a fall, lots of falls, minor falls, major falls, setbacks, mistakes, failures, screw-ups, wipeouts. Some are not our fault, some are. Sometimes they just happen with no control of our own. It's that loss we don't think we can recover from. That loved one that's no longer with us, it's part of being human, and it's part of what's recorded in our human history through the Bible. Starting with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the enslavement of Israel and Egypt, the life of David, that was ups and downs. On and on, we've read about these different situations and studied through our long story short sermon series here about different falls and different setbacks. Some are minor, some are major, some are, some are created by, 
by direct, direct results of events or situations that, uh, that, that people or groups of people um, caused, and some were just indirect actions um, that, that, that came about through different experiences in the Bible. And today's scripture is going to show us a fall, a fall of Israel, or rather the fall of Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Second uh, Chronicles uh, verse, uh, chapter 36, it's going to, we're going to read about the fall of Jerusalem. We're going to start with verse 15, chapter 36. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men, young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and the office, officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors. Jerusalem fell, and it fell hard. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about um, the Israelites crossing the Jordan, right? They crossed the Jordan, and they entered into the promised land, taking it by conquest through through the providence of the Lord. Remember the scripture was, no one will stand against you. Be strong and courageous. That was, this is the same Israel who was being strong and courageous and then they fell away from God. They stopped listening to God. They stopped following God's direction. They got a little too confident, a little too cocky, and now this is happening. Total destruction. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sacks the city brutally, enslaves the survivors, and takes them and all the valuables and all the valuable contents from the temple back to Babylon. We read this, uh, we can flip over to Psalm 137. It records some of the emotion, some of the feeling of, of, of those folks that were actually, actually experienced this. Um, in this poem, they record, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Our humanness allows us to empathize with Israel. We may not have experienced a fall of total destruction like this on this scale or magnitude, but maybe personally it has felt like it. Maybe we've experienced the same emotional response. Have you ever sat down and wept? And amen for anybody who sat down and wept, experienced that emotional response. Their babies were ripped from their arms and dashed against the rocks. It's in there. Keep reading. Psalm 137, you get to the end. They don't know if they can recover from this. They are in a bad place. Maybe you've stumbled. Maybe you've been in these situations you had no control over. Maybe a relationship has been screwed up and cannot, and you don't think it can be recovered. 
Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a job that is lost. Or you're completely upside down financially. And there's, there's all sorts of uncontrollable stuff. Has anybody ever experienced a global pandemic? <laughs> like, is that, is that something that, you know, maybe, maybe like a basketball season that got screwed up that just is not going the way it should go? Or a senior year? A senior year that's not what senior year is supposed to be? Or your freshman year of college that's not what your whole vision of what it was going to be ended up to be? Here's a personal one for you. How about having the opportunity to be part of, of growing and starting um, a thriving new, a new congregation, just a little church plant that gets to kind of take off and experience. We were doing this thing that was, um, we were doing community together uh, face-to-face in a digital world, right? Like it's a digital world and we were getting people together face-to-face and having these real life like personal relationships and felt like we had something going there. We had the backing of a 150-year-old institution, you know, creating this, this experience and space, and then kind of all grinds to the halt with the global pandemic, doesn't it? But, you know, sometimes, sometimes we can really feel like those Israelites. We feel like we sat down and weep, or we actually do sit down and weep. And sometimes we can feel like, oh, we're in here, face down, 12 laps in. These are tragic realities of the human experience. It's all part of it. But they're only tragic if we see them as the end instead of viewing them as the beginning of a comeback. See, all great comebacks have a common thread, a common element. They start with a setback. This is easy to see in hindsight, of course, but, but in the actual moment, we can only experience it as hope. The Israelites that survived the destruction and endured the slavery, they did so with a hope, a faithfulness and a hope that God would deliver them and God had the possibility of a comeback in their future. A hope that says nothing is impossible with God a hope that they found reinforced in Scripture. If you want to flip back to Jeremiah 25, we find some Scripture that we read last week um, with, with, um, from the prophet Jeremiah as he foretold of this exile that was to come. And the last part of that Scripture we read, I want to read verses um, 11 and 12. This is of Jeremiah 25. He's talking about Jerusalem here. He says, The whole city will become a desolate wasteland, And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. Israel didn't lose hope of salvation after their fall into exile, but rather it kind of strengthened it. They were holding on. It was intensified as they believed in the assurance of the faithfulness of God. When the time was right, they were given a plan to return to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would be, and the temple would be rebuilt. We find kind of a 30,000 foot view of this um, as we end 2 Chronicles. If we go back to pick up where we were earlier, I'm going to reread that, um, that last verse and I'm going to finish it because I, I cut us up short intentionally earlier. He carried into exile, this is Nebuchadnezzar, carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came into power. 
The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word uh, of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, there it is again, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. A king, a foreign king, who does not worship God, conquers Babylon, and sends the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He finances it. This temple, that a temple to a God, he doesn't even worship. Now, the comeback story, it isn't all unicorns and rainbows from there. If you want to go read more of it, the next chapter, um, or the next book of the Bible has Ezra. It has more of this story of the ups and downs that they experience um, in getting the temple rebuilt. It didn't happen overnight. But, but, right now, I want to jump from, from that comeback story. I want to talk to you about another comeback story we read about in the New Testament. It's a story Jesus told, a parable Jesus told, and we call it the, we call it the, uh, the prodigal son. And you may have heard this story before, and uh, we find it recorded in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus, Jesus is, is teaching, and he's using his stories to teach. And he opens this story with, there was a man who had two sons, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me, a share of the, give me my share of the estate. So he did and divided the property among them. So here we got this son who said, Dad, wish you were dead. Give me half my stuff. I got stuff to do, right? Places to go, things to do. Fork it over, old man. And his dad complies and says, all right, son, and gives him, his, gives, him half that, gives him that inheritance and sends him on his way. And he goes out and, and goes off on his, his big adventure. And we, we find that, um, you know, we read later, wealth, um, squanders his wealth in wild living, you know, do use your, use your interpretations there. And he's spent it all, and he's, he, he's now penniless, and he's friendless because all his new friends he had had him for just the money, and, and they leave him, and he's alone. He doesn't have a job, and he gets a job feeding, feeding slops, bean pods, we read, feeding slop and bean pods to pigs, finding himself wondering whether those bean pods taste as good as they kind of look. And, um, and he's, really, he's really down, and, and he comes to his senses. We read chapter 7, or verse 17, he comes to his senses, and he realizes that many of his father's servants are in a better situation than he is. They're having an easier time than he is having, and he decides he's going to go home, and he's going to throw himself at the feet of his father. He's going to beg for forgiveness and ask to just be made, just be made like a servant. So he's he's that, he's made the decision, and he's headed he's headed home. And while he was still a long way off, we read, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is unprecedented affection from a 
first century wealthy landowner man to run, to, to embrace, to kiss in this unprecedented running to meet this son. And the son, he, he gets it. He spits it all out right. He's got his speech. He's been practicing it the whole time. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad's not listening at all, you know. But like, he's, he's kind of hearing it. But he's getting, he's all excited because he's, he's still embracing his son here. And the father says to his servants, he says quickly to a servant, bring me, uh, go, get, go, get, go get the robe and the sandals and the ring and the good stuff and bring it on here and get it on, on and get, get a fat cow and kill that. And then here we read, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This son most certainly had a fall. Can we agree on that? He had a relationship fall, he had a career fall, he had a financial fall, maybe even a health crisis with the whole bean pod thing. (laughs) But he realizes who he is and he returns to his father's house. He returns to where he was made to be. He has hope of this forgiveness, hope of returning to a place where he has known Love. Remember our friend Leslie Vren, right here from earlier, wiped out, face down, in front of a global audience, 12 laps into a 25 lap race. He got back up. He didn't stay down. He continued running. Now, I believe because he had hope of a comeback, or else he wouldn't have, right? He had hope of a comeback. He got up and he kept on running. He had hope of a finish beyond that fall. Something, something more than just ending with the fall. Well, he regains the lead and he wins that race. And this was the finals. So that meant a gold medal. And by the way, he ended up setting a world record too. Matt, you want to write that down? Um, world record in that race. We love comeback stories. They're just as much a part of our human experience as the fall that makes them possible. Like the Israelites, we can find ourselves, or we can find hope in the promise of God found in Scripture. And like the prodigal son, we can trust that when we have nowhere to turn, we can turn back to the loving arms of the Father. And like last Adrian, when we stumble, when we fall, When we get knocked down, we can get back up and we can do what we were made to do. We were made to return home to a promised land. We were made to come back to the Father's love. We were made for a finish beyond our falls. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, C.S. Lewis, great um, author during the um, mid-1950s, he writes, or 40s and 50s, but one of Lewis's quotes is about heaven and in this eternal relationship um, that we are made for, that God made us for. Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
I love that. We were made for a comeback. God designed us to live in relationship with him and join in the celebration of his victory over our fall. We were made to, to be in relationship with the rec, to reconcile our relationship with God. And when our hope is in Christ, there is no other way the story can end but in victory. Through Jesus, God orchestrated the greatest comeback of all time. That's not even arguable. That's, in fact, the greatest comeback of all time. Jesus did what only he could do. He came back from the grave. He came back from the dead so that we can have hope. A hope that is greater than the fear of death. So even though we all experience falls, screw-ups, losses, Jesus offers each one of us hope. Hope that our worst setbacks, our most horrific falls, are not the end of our story, but the beginning of our greatest comebacks. Amen? Amen. Lord, this morning I pray that these words beyond the hearts of, of all those hearing it, all those around here to know that, that no matter what they're going through, Lord, no matter what they've experienced, no matter what setbacks and falls and, and screw-ups and no matter how many do-overs they need or how many opportunities to come back to you, to they know that you are there with open arms embracing them, running towards them, embracing them, kissing them, planning the victory celebration for their return, planning the triumphant celebration for their, their return and their comeback. The greatest comebacks come from the greatest falls, from the greatest setbacks. Lord, we pray that we have hope, hope in your salvation and hope in our ability to, with you, come back from all these setbacks and be part of your kingdom and part of your kingdom here on earth and your kingdom in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.